Hi, this is Lisa Costapier. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Dr. Brad Leach about intestinal inflammation, including testing and treatment in clinical practice. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and the connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepristi, and with us on the line today is Dr. Judy Lobez. Judy is an expert on relaxation therapy and director of art and science of relaxation. Today we'll be discussing relaxation, particularly breathing and guided imagery from an evidence-based perspective. We'll cover how these techniques can help improve certain conditions and improve overall health. So welcome to FX Medicine, Judy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to be with FX Medicine this morning, this afternoon. Yes, this, yeah, probably afternoon for you and morning for me. So uh, um, you know, certainly today, obviously, we'll talk about you know, relaxation. And I know that you uh, do, train a lot of practitioners in how to do relaxation. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this as a specialty? Um, Yes, I became uh, interested. Initially, I studied psychology and then uh, decided that being a psychologist was not necessarily for me and uh, did a massage course. And I worked as a massage therapist and then taught massage therapy at TAFE for many, many years. And it was obvious that people come to massage therapy essentially for two things, because they're stressed or because they're in pain. And I I saw clearly from a clinical perspective how massage therapy enabled people to relax, I guess, both physically and psychologically. And with the psych background Mm -hmm. um, being largely to do with the mind and then massage therapy focused on the the body, um, it got me very interested in the connections between the two and and the impact of relaxation on both the mind and the and the body and mm-hmm. really also seeing how stress is a very everyday part of life and how distress is a part of every health and medical condition and I started putting you know joining the dots and realizing that relaxation is mm-hmm. is actually therapeutic in in many forms Oh, that's great. I know certainly I, uh, myself, I love massage as a form of relaxation and obviously to, to manage pain. So it's really nice how you've kind of started off as a massage therapist and then kind of gone into the relaxation side of things. That's right. That's right. And it was all linked by, okay, what what do all the massage therapy and, and other interventions do for the extent of stress that we experience? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so before we then get into um, discussing relaxation and, and, and particularly evidence-based relaxation techniques, can you first just tell us a little bit about what the difference is between relaxation and relaxation therapy? 
Sure. Well, you you essentially covered it there. Relaxation is our individual preferred ways to unwind, to let go of of the worries or or the hectic life that we lead. Whereas relaxation therapy is using evidence based techniques for specific conditions. So the techniques have been well researched with randomised controlled trials um, and written up in peer-reviewed journals. Mm. And they are used for the, for the express purpose of decreasing the impact of chronic conditions. Um, and most of what we see as practitioners are chronic conditions. Okay. So when you talk about evidence-based relaxation, uh, what examples are you referring to there? There are numerous interventions and techniques and forms of relaxation that have been well studied. And the research that's coming out now is increasingly sophisticated. It's very exciting to read the research now. Um, For me, the the first and foremost form of relaxation that's evidence-based, and to me is the the framework or the um, foundation of anything else is diaphragmatic breathing. Um, It's the It's the first technique that I teach because for me um, and from my clinical experience, it then underpins, it enables people to then perform other techniques better. So there's diaphragmatic breathing and the extent of research, again, is extraordinary. We can talk about that later. Guided imagery is another one that is well researched. Yoga is increasingly examined um, and particularly, so all these techniques that the research now looks at, what does yoga do for asthma? What can diaphragmatic breathing do for anxiety? Mindfulness, meditation, there's very sophisticated evidence to support the efficacy of these techniques um, for the conditions that we see clinically every day. Okay, so you've got your relaxation-based therapies like you, you obviously you, when you mentioned kind of the core being your diaphragmatic breathing and, and all the other techniques that you've talked about. And then and then the other side, you've got just kind of for what engaging in relaxing activities, which are not necessarily the same, but uh, they might be soothing to the body. They might be, um, would you call like things like massage, would that be a relaxation therapy or a or just a relaxation you know, form of relaxation? That's that's an interesting one. Um, certainly, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, people go to have a massage to relax, and that relaxation can be muscular. So we break down the muscular tension with massage therapy, or it enables someone to have that if it's an hour long massage to have that hours break from the day to day activities. So, and and massage therapy is also um, supported with um, a lot of of research. I guess the difference is that Mm -hmm. uh, massage therapy is, I mean, there is self-massage and that's a valuable thing as well. Um, What I try and do when I teach medical and health practitioners is to concentrate on techniques that are easy to integrate into clinical practice, be it um, a psychologist or um, a doctor or a social worker, counsellor. 
you know, these you know, these professionals um, most often are not massage therapists. So you won't be, you know, saying to a, a patient or a client, well, I'm going to give you a massage as well. But you mm-hmm. can teach them how to take a few slow, deep breaths. So the techniques that I focus on are those which health and medical practitioners can learn can be taught well to do and then taught well to apply clinically. And that, again, is why I concentrate on diaphragmatic breathing and guided imagery rather than yoga or massage um, because most practitioners won't include that in their practice. Okay, so these are more around ones that people can kind of take home and do it from their from from home and be able to kind of implement it uh, at different times of the day or wherever necessary and, and possibly even do it in different settings. Well, yes, yeah. yes, um, and that's an important thing to discuss with your clients or patients when when trying to um, uh, encourage them to use these techniques regularly. So, if if we talk about relaxation and the benefit of relaxation, and you know, obviously, you know, many people know that it's important to relax. Does that then mean that all stress is bad, or kind of how do you define when stress becomes bad? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it's it's a myth that I like to bust because stress is not bad for us. Stress is a fundamental part of life, and the true definition of stress is from a um, health and medical point of view, is the demands that are placed upon us that force us to adapt or to change. And so, you know, in this day and age, coronavirus is um, a stress. It forces us to adapt, to change, to get used to wearing masks, to keep distance, socially distant. But everything about our lives um, involves stress. So for your listeners to concentrate on what we're saying is a demand placed upon them to not think about what they're going to be doing after the podcast and to to adapt to the information that's coming, you know, through this discussion. So our our the information that we impart is a stressor that people need to adapt to and, and listen carefully and think about. The food that we eat is a stress. It's a stressor on our digestive system. It's a, we need to adapt to digesting the food, to um, stimulating the digestive juices, and um, the digestive system responds and adapts to the food. The food is a stressor. It's a demand placed upon our digestive system to adapt, to change. You know, getting up from a chair um, is a stressor on our proprioception and on our erector spinae muscles. And it's effortless for us usually. Um, We adapt, we change, we accommodate that demand. What happens is it's all about the ability to cope. So when you say what what makes stress bad, it's when we can no longer, or not no longer, it's when we are compromised, when our, when our coping skills are compromised. So if I have, for whatever reason, if I'm particularly, you know, if somebody has asthma or, or respiratory condition, wearing a mask might be particularly mm-hmm. difficult. And so their coping is reduced in wearing a mask and that reduces their ability to go out. In our everyday lives, we deal, we cope with things all the time. 
but it's when the demands become too much or too many that our coping skills are reduced. And that's when stress becomes distress. So when our patients or clients come to us and say, I am so stressed, I've had it up to here, um, they actually mean, well, I'm not coping and I'm distressed. Very, very important distinct difference between stress and distress. And the English language, in our everyday language, we talk about stress, but we actually mean distress. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you've got then stress that can be, um, you know, you still you maybe experience a stress, a stress or that stress or makes you help facilitate change or it might help you achieve your goals and and so forth. But when it becomes debilitating for you or impacts on your ability to kind of do things, then that becomes a uh, then it becomes bad, and then we potentially need to look at alternative ways of kind of managing it. That's exactly right. And and when you say it challenges us and makes us achieve things, there is um, stress, which is demands placed upon us to adapt and change. Distress is when we can't cope adequately with those demands. And um, eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, is positive stress. And that's what gets us out of bed in the morning and motivates us Mm -hmm. and, and enables us to achieve the things that we want to. So it's positive stress. It um, it invigorates us. It's a positive challenge and we cope well with gotcha. it. Okay. All right. Great. So, so I think that's important for practitioners to be aware and for us to explain to our, our clients that, uh, you know, certainly stress is not always bad and sometimes it's actually really helpful. Obviously, if you're, you're, you've got a line running after you, you want to experience it. Uh, yes. <laughs> significant level of stress to help you run faster um, it serves a purpose there. So, uh, and even I suppose when you're exercising, you're putting stress on the joints, and and that is not necessarily a bad thing. That might actually help facilitate and help muscles grow and things like that. It, it depends to what extent. Um, yes. Yeah. But that when you when you talk about a lion or saber tooth tiger running after us and it elicits elicits the fight or flight response, that is a coping mechanism. And if we can run away fast enough, you know, we've achieved, uh, yeah. you know, then that threat is is um, gone and uh, we've adapted to the demand of being face-to-face with a lion or, or dangerous animal. Yeah. I suppose when you get to a point when a lion is running after you, it's probably too late anyway. Um, <laughs> odds are not too great. <laughs> Well, we don't want to, and I think modern our modern that that is a that was a major demand and challenge of of times gone by. You know, when we're faced with a with a wild animal, yeah. but it is the typical example that we use um, for the uh, for initiating the the fight or flight response or yes, freeze. Exactly. Um, yeah. But we have far more modern day distressors now, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I just wanted to go back to your discussion about diaphragmatic breathing. So can you tell us a bit about diaphragmatic breathing, um, you know, why it's beneficial for mental and physical health? Oh, that's a, it's a big question. On so many levels, taking, taking slow breaths is beneficial. So in the first and perhaps most obvious way, it encourages us to oxygenate our cells. Surprisingly, we have, um, the literature does vary, but up to 70, 70 trillion cells in our body, and almost all of them need oxygen. So, and we need oxygen, when you look at the three primary necessities for life, 
uh, oxygen, water and food, the primary one is oxygen. We need oxygen mm -hmm. before we need water and food. So the, the mere oxygenation of all our cells enables them to function, you know, and cell life, cellular activity is, is again, just remarkable and incredibly complex, and it needs adequate supplies yes. of oxygen. So that's probably the most direct way to speak Generally, uh, it also does stimulate the vagus nerve, and the vagus nerve is involved in the mm -hmm. in the parasympathetic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, of course, is split into two, and one deals with stress, um, prepares us for distress and challenges, and the other enables us to relax. And that is important as a moderator between sleep and meeting life's challenges. So on a physiological level, there's countless ways, many yeah. ways, um, that that increased oxygen, that, that use of the diaphragm um, assists us to go from the sympathetic response to a parasympathetic nervous response. Um, it also, using the diaphragm, uh, stimulates the viscera, our organs, our abdominal organs. So in turn, that can help us digest better. It can calm, as I mentioned, okay. the autonomic nervous system. It releases um, calming neurotransmitters. It releases anti-inflammatory um, yes. immune cells. So on so many levels, the simple, simple act of taking slow breaths initiates a cascade of events both psychologically and and across the range of systems, immune, neurological, endocrinological, um, and then, of course, psychological as well. Wow, it's amazing when you're, as you're speaking, I'm kind of hearing to you about all the potential effects that, that diaphragmatic breathing can have in our body. And uh, it's really important for us to really assess that in all our clients, really, then. I mean, so if we think about all the different mental health conditions that people present with, uh, diaphragmatic breathing can obviously help anxiety, but it probably has an, or would have an effect on depression and things like that, too. Would that be right? It does. It does, or it can, and there is evidence to demonstrate that. As I mentioned earlier, you know, really well um, done research, and because I guess because taking slow, deep breaths does directly and indirectly affect most of our bodily systems. Um, it then, in turn, has an impact on each and every chronic condition that we see a lot of a lot of the work i do the research that i look at falls under the area of um, psychoneuroimmunology and i know that you've had mm -hmm. a podcast on pni before and to me pni is the vehicle it is the the research that demonstrates how relaxation techniques such as diaphragmatic breathing 
actually make a difference. So they follow the physiological pathways through the nervous system or through the endocrine system, um, through the immune system, and demonstrate the impact that um, that relaxation such as diaphragmatic breathing can do. Probably the most researched condition is anxiety for diaphragmatic breathing, and uh, the, the evidence is strong. I, I can't emphasise enough how much really good evidence there is to demonstrate that anxiety can be reduced. And to me, the more I work in this area, the more, as you said, each and every healthcare practitioner ideally, um, I don't like to say should, but um, ideally hopefully will incorporate an understanding of of relaxation and how to take slow deep breaths using the diaphragm properly because the benefit of including these, you know, as a tool in your practitioner toolkit is that these relaxation techniques are evidence-based, they're non-pharmacological, they're non-invasive, they are certainly cost effective and there's a whole realm of research that shows that we can reduce the burden of healthcare dollars, cost of healthcare, by implementing relaxation techniques on certain chronic conditions. And there's a lot of research that has shown that. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the the argument for incorporating these techniques becomes stronger and stronger. So... I know that, um, you know, we often will talk to people about, you know, taking slow, deep breaths. Um, and I, I know we can't get into it in detail um, in, in this podcast, but how do you go about teaching, you know, diaphragmatic breathing? Well, teaching um, all medical and health practitioners um, is a win-win situation because the way to teach it is to first get the practitioner to experience it and to learn to do it themselves yep. and to understand the importance of regular practice to understand the importance of um, doing it correctly. Um, and I and again, I can't emphasize enough that relaxation has an accumulative effect, and it is best, it is most uh, effective when it is performed regularly. Now that might put people off thinking, oh, I can't afford to, you know do something every day. Whereas in the reality is that it's not necessarily the duration. Even a few minutes every day makes a difference. So that's there are important things to stress to the practitioners that if you spend a few minutes taking slow, deep breaths almost every day, the impact can be quite stark. Uh, on your health and well-being. Yeah. So it's, it's the first step is to train the practitioner to, you know, it is, um, uh, what's the term, um, heal or heal thyself or physician heal mm-hmm. thyself. You know, you can't recommend a technique until you have gained proficiency for yourself. And then you also can honestly and genuinely say, look, I initially I found it difficult. I got a little bit breathless or I found it hard to to commit to doing it every day, but I found that this helped me or this was beneficial and this became easier. And you can explain to your patients what your own experience is and that makes it real for them. So the first step in enabling practitioners to teach 
clients is to really teach the practitioner and, and get the practitioner to, to become proficient and to experience the benefits for themselves. Okay, so it's really important for them to uh, to really try it themselves, um, practice it, you know, set some time uh, about uh, practicing the techniques. I remember, you know, you make a really good point there because I remember myself um, years ago or 20 years ago learning progressive muscle relaxation and uh, yeah. I really had to practice that every day and it took a while for me to ben- experience any benefit from it. I think it was really a couple of weeks before I really experienced any benefit from it and then it's like, ah, got it, now this makes sense, now I can feel it. And, uh, and that I found that really useful to be able to explain to my clients that, you know, sometimes you've got to persist, sometimes you actually may uh, feel more uncomfortable uh, initially, but uh, it's a, obviously a task that needs to be practised. Definitely. And I think, you know, it, people will respond to your own, to, to hearing um, a practitioner's experience. And yes, there there's a lot. Part of yeah. the clinical application of something like diaphragmatic breathing is negotiating Um, with the client or patient, well, okay, let's talk about when you are going to include this in your daily life. And um, so I teach practitioners practical ways to recommend to clients, well, to themselves and for their clients, how to incorporate taking a few slow, deep breaths every day. And there are some practical hints, you know, that, that can encourage them uh, compliance and regular practice. Terrific. All right. So, oh, just a question then with regards to diaphragmatic breathing, is there anybody that, um, you know, we should be careful with regards to using diaphragmatic breathing? Any precautions around it? Um, look, there's certainly no um, absolute contraindications. Well, really, I think the only contraindication I ever came across was you know, if somebody's having a psychotic episode, then relaxation is not what they need at that time. If So you need to look in, into well, what are the person's, the individual's um, current conditions. If somebody is diabetic, then you start the relaxation making sure that their blood sugar levels are are okay. Um, if somebody is asthmatic, ideally they'd have a puffer available should they need it. Um, I guess the, the first and foremost um, caution is if somebody has low blood pressure because relaxation decreases blood pressure. And so if they've already got low blood pressure, you may want to consider relaxing them in a seated position rather than lying down and certainly help them up. Um, I mean, one of the rules of um, taking people through relaxation is to bring them back slowly, to stand by them as they stand up, you know, have a drink of water, make sure you come back to the real world very carefully and slowly. Mm -hmm. The other one you mentioned, which I wanted to talk about uh, briefly in this podcast, was the guided imagery. So can you tell us a bit about guided imagery and, and what it involves? Oh, guided imagery is has many names. To me, it's actually similar to daydreaming um, and I, I find it quite sad when we sort of, if ever a child is told, you know, stop staring out the window and get on with something. Um, to to see things in our mind's eye, I love the expression mind's eye, when we see things in our head, we are strengthening not the reality of them but the, the impact of them, the effect of it. And very often we use guided imagery 
to plan for something. You know, what what kind of holiday do I want? And you see yourself, you know, exploring a certain place or whether it's a, a sporting kind of holiday or a lazy holiday. We actually use our mind's eye more often than we're aware. So guided imagery is also called mental imagery or visualisation, guided visualisation The difference between them, I guess, is are you doing it for yourself or is someone or technology guiding you? So guided imagery is when a practitioner takes you through a scenario for for therapeutic purposes. Mm -hmm. And my my sense of it, or from my years of experience, I, I think that guided imagery for therapeutic purposes can be split into two. One is general relaxation and the other is specifically to decrease the effects of chronic conditions. And I I want to um, put in here that when I talk about chronic conditions, I think that they fall under all chronic conditions can be classified under sort of five or six areas. So there's mood disorders, so that is your anxiety and depression and and the other mood disorders. You have um, pain, and obviously there's a vast array of different types of pain. Uh, Sleep disorders, of which insomnia is one. Um, Then there's the trauma, of which PTSD is one kind of trauma. And what we know now to be absolutely true is inflammation is a chronic condition and inflammation is part of or chronic inflammation and disease go hand in hand. You know, about five years ago, eight years ago, we were tentatively saying it looks like most diseases um, involve chronic inflammation. We can categorically say now that disease, chronic disease, chronic inflammation go hand in hand. So when we look at whether it's guided imagery or diaphragmatic breathing for chronic conditions. I think we cover everything when we look at mood disorders, sleep disorders, pain, trauma, and inflammation. So um, I wanted to to clarify that. So there's the difference. You can use guided imagery for, you know, I'm fed up, I'm exhausted, I want to relax. And so a good clinician Mm -hmm. can take you through a relaxation scene and there's very specific things. There are a few guidelines that, that a clinician needs to be aware of to do that well. And then um, a more uh, specific way of using guided imagery is to look at the condition in particular, What? how does the individual patient or client experience that condition, and then how can you use guided imagery to reduce it? I never say cure or eliminate, but certainly decrease and reduce. Yeah. So so how do you choose a scene when it comes to guided imagery? Mm, great question. And this is really important. And maybe I can best describe um, the importance of choosing it by telling you how when I started many, many years ago, I made the mistake of um, I chose the scene and I took about a dozen people through a day at the beach. 
And then when we finished, you know, I asked them, how was that? And three people said, that was dreadful. You know, one said, I hate the beach. I've got fair skin. I never spend a day at the beach. You know, and somebody else said, you know, oh, I don't swim. I never go to the beach. Mm-hmm. So the whole point of guided imagery is that you take a scene from, you take the cues and clues from uh-huh. each client. What do you find relaxing? What is your place? And that place can be real. So it can be a beach, it can be a bed, it can be lying on a hammock, it can be having dinner with the extended family. People relax differently and a relaxing scene is is very individual. So I ask the client, you know, what's relaxing for you? Uh, where are you? Actually, there are a variety of ways of doing it. One way is to ask them what their scene is and the other is, you know, if they say, I love being, you know, wherever it is, in a hammock, on the deck, by the beach, whatever it is. So then I say, okay, um, you know, do you like gentle swimming, swinging of the hammock? And I get cues from them and then I talk them through that scene. Good. The other, but the other way that I use more often because it's simpler is to get the and this is also much better in a group um, if you're if you're taking a group through guided imagery is to ask everybody think of your favorite relaxed safe happy place you don't need to tell me what it is but I want you to to start in your mind's eye um, thinking of where you would most rather be to relax. And then I simply go through, what do you see here? Look at the colours, um, be aware of the sights that are so special in this place. What do you hear here? Um, what are the sounds that relax you? And take them through. I don't even know where they are, but I'm in yeah. a generic way taking them through the senses, the five or one or two of the five senses of being in that favorite place and that's a generic way to do it which is which works well it's a little bit more technical and specific um, when dealing with chronic conditions but the trick is to ask the patient or client for their experience if they're feeling pain to get some words of how they experience that pain or descriptions and, and and this takes practice, and this is what I train practitioners mm-hmm. to do. It's it's um it does take time and practice. So that's great advice. I mean, it sounds like you know certainly you know individualising it, and and we've got to be careful because I know that um you know for some people that's not necessarily relaxing, and we need to really find out more about the person or get them to kind of be involved in that process to identify that that image. And I think it's really valuable advice. Thanks for that. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And and so, um, in the clinical setting, it does take a little bit time, a bit of time to prepare, um, and then you know, especially, but well, particularly when you're seeing um, a, a client repeatedly, um, it becomes easier and and um, more streamlined to take them through that scene or that imagery. Yeah, yeah. Now. It'd be interesting. I think it'd be great for uh, people to uh, go through a, an example of a guided imagery. Is that something that you would be able to take us through a brief guided imagery exercise now? 
Happily, and and it would be a good way to demonstrate this generic way where if I can Absolutely. ask the listeners to, to take a moment now to think of, um, as I said, it can be real or it can be imaginary. So my favourite place is lying on a cumulus cloud, you know, that's just soft and, and contoured to, to me and with the gentle sun. Um, so any, any place where you are happy and safe and comfortable and relaxed, if you bring that place to mind, I um, am happy. How, how long would you like to go for? I'll just, even just, if you just a couple of minutes, just a few minutes, if you can just take us to a brief one, that'd be great for people to be able to hear uh, the process and, and actually participate as a, uh, in it themselves. Terrific. All right. Well, it'll take more than a couple of minutes, but I'll just spend a few minutes uh, uh, doing it and people can get a sense of it. So as you prepare to now go through a guided imagery relaxation session, bring to mind in your mind's eye the place where you really love to go. And if you are seated, then bring your buttocks back in the chair um, straighten your spine, bring your shoulders down, uh, turn your phone, well, eliminate as many um, possible um, disruptions. And if you're lying down, put a pillow under your knees and I encourage you to close your eyes. And I usually start people with taking a few slow breaths, um, which we haven't formally done, but it's always nice to do. And as you prepare um, with your eyes closed, taking a couple of slow, deep breaths and all your attention on those two or three slow breaths before we start the imagery and um, allowing yourself to be completely in the moment and bringing your attention to your breath first, taking a couple of slow breaths, expanding your torso as you inhale, and slowly sinking down as you exhale. One more slow breath, expanding your torso, Inhale and smoothly letting go as you exhale. Allow your breath now to fall comfortably, breathing as effortly as possible. And in your own time, it's always at your own pace. Bring to your mind's eye what you see in this wonderful, relaxing place. As other thoughts come to mind, let them drift away and come back to the colours, the shapes. What do you see? Be aware of the sights around you. Notice what you see. Look closely. 
Look all around, sights. Be aware of the colors of your favorite things. Notice the shapes, contours, shadows. Look around for your attention on what you see, for your awareness on what you see. Very gently now, bring your awareness to how you feel. Notice how you feel physically. Be aware of what you feel mentally, emotionally. With your eyes still closed, bring your awareness to the room you're in. Notice the sounds around you, where you are, here. With your eyes closed, gently, gently move. Wiggle your fingers and toes. And if you want to rub your hands together and place them over your eyes, it's a nice way to open your eyes. And become used to the idea of being back in the real world. And what I'd like to bring your attention to as you start to wiggle and move around and come back to the real world is that that whole exercise was five minutes, four and a half, five minutes. And if it made a difference, again, you can realise that you don't need to spend a lot of time. It's the frequency and it's the focus that makes the big difference. So hopefully, Adrian, you're not too relaxed to keep talking. I am. That's the problem now. <laughs> well done. Thank you very much for that. I've, uh, I've just got to slowly get my stress levels back up so I can start doing what I need to do. But that was that was brilliant. It's, it's really good to see that just within five minutes you can engage in such an exercise and yeah, you can do that anywhere. You can do that sitting in the car. You can do that at home. You can do that. You know. I think that's, that's one of the things that I really do emphasise when I teach practitioners um, is that you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. It's the yeah. practising so that it's performed correctly and it's um, the regularity. Terrific. Thank you very much for this. So just finishing off, so I know that you do training on the art and science of relaxation. Can you just tell us a bit about this course and what is covered and uh, and how practitioners can go about doing it? Um, well, art and science of relaxation um, is dedicated to teaching relaxation therapy. Um, particularly for chronic conditions, but for general relaxation as well. And uh, I run um, online courses. I run online relaxation sessions for individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and the courses, I mean, one of my courses coming up in the next couple of months is through the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Sydney. It's an online six-hour course. 
But I'm very flexible and, um, I, you know, I, I, the courses are run for the audience. So um, they are tailor-made, you know, whether they're, uh, depending on who they're for. Um, the the best thing to do is to go to the, the website artandscienceofrelaxation.com, contact me and, and we can talk about what you would like to learn and, and how. And I certainly tailor courses and lessons and relaxation sessions. Um, but there are uh, other courses that people can do that are already online. I've recorded webinars and seminars. Mm-hmm. Um, so but there's a range of ways to, to do it. And then um, hopefully sooner rather than later, we can do some on uh, face-to-face seminars as well. All right, that'd be great. Well, terrific. Thanks for letting us know about that. And we'll certainly include links um, and information in the show notes for people too if they want to find out more information about your courses. But uh, thank you very much today for joining us, uh, Judy. It's uh, you know, to talk about relaxation therapy and you know, techniques like you know, obviously relaxation techniques and breathing and guided imagery. And definitely thank you very much for the guided imagery exercise that you sent us, that you put us through. So uh, it's particularly important to understand how they work to improve overall health and uh, and to know the various evidence-based relaxation option practitioners can use to treat different mental and physical conditions. And uh, this is especially important considering the mental health crises that we are currently experiencing. So thank you again very much for uh, being with us today. It's an absolute pleasure and and I sincerely hope that uh, more and more people recognise the simplicity of evidence-based relaxation techniques and how truly beneficial they are and particularly in um, in, uh, this time of of increasing mental and, and physical conditions. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Adrian. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Did you know Bioceuticals has a clinic-only range developed for exclusive use by clinicians? This product range offers complex formulas, high doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation, and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more.